0: Hello, everyone. I went to uh, Charlie Pickering's live filming of the weekly uh, last week, and they do that every time a segment ends or starts or something, and it makes it feel incredibly exciting. So I figured it was a way for radiotherapy from now on. Whenever we finish with the song, you know, we come in or after an ad, whoo- Oh, I'm excited. It's like, a, it's like we've got a live studio, studio audience, except it's us. Happy Sunday, Triple R listeners. I'm Dr. Doolittle, and uh, is it just me, or is Sunday universally considered to be the best day of the week? It's certainly my favourite. Of course, one of the reasons I love it is because it's radiotherapy time. It's time for some health chat, medical gossip, behind the scenes secrets, and lots more from the medical health world. And have we got a big show planned today? Two exclamation marks are put on the intro there. Two. Not one, two. <laughs> Joining us in the studio is a brand new medical student, Dr. Training Wheels. Have I got that right? Training Wheels. We're going to call it Wheels for short. Um, Wheels is here for two reasons. First, she's going to talk about a foundation that she works in called the Vincent Kyoto charitable foundation. I think I got that right. Yes. And second, to chat about what it's like to be at the very start of her career. In fact, my math says about four weeks into it. Exactly Have I got that right, Wheels? Yes, what? that's right. Oh, so good. <laughs> I'm feeling good about myself already. Also in the studio is Miranda Paraskeva. Dr. Miranda is a hot shot. That's fair to say. She's a respiratory physician working in the lung transplant team at Alfred Health. But look, just as, you know, in parentheses in brackets, just as an aside. Anyone who works in transplant, the rest of us sort of, we feel slightly nervous around. It's like um, they're the rock stars of um, of health transplants. (laughs) You know, they basically take people who are essentially you know, facing death. It's very sad. And they make them face life again so they're the rock stars and she's one of the physicians working in the lung transplant team at alfred health managing kids and adolescents primarily undergoing transplants and miranda's going to tell us what it's like working in with lung transplants in that field and with particular reference to the challenges of managing adolescent patients who apparently are a bit particularly difficult group. We're also going to take a look at the laws of attraction after a study came out this week saying people with psych disorders are more likely to marry others with similar disorders. And we're going to ask, what does it all mean? And to help with this, of course, we have an ever-trusty general practitioner, university lecturer and women's and family health expert, <laughs> Dr. Cafri. Whenever I say you're, I think you're a university I'm... tutor lecturer, same thing. No, I think they're very different.
1: I don't. But I d- welcome d-
0: aboard, Thank Capri. You. Welcome Thank back. You.
1: It's good to be back. I'm this is our first you. show for the year.
0: It is. Yeah, because regular listeners will probably realise, but for new listeners, we rotate. Every- There's a four teams, and we- so we rotate. Every four weeks. And this is our first show back for the year for this particular team, the Doolittle Capri. Who else is normally on our team? Dr Seuss, Either. Eva Green, both of whom um, wanted to take the first show of the year Fair off, enough. Slackers. And then I think they want to take our Easter show off too. Anyway, and we've got Kent panelling this week too. Yay, Kent. A round of applause. Yay, Kent. So welcome, team. Let's say hello to everyone. Let's start with you, Training Wheels. How are you down there? At the... Very well. Is this your first time on radiotherapy? It must be. It's my your... first
2: time on any radio. Oh, really? So I'm very nervous and excited. Oh, Thank you for having cheers. me. You're doing Triple three well. cheers.
0: You look so relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> my first time, I really, I didn't sleep the night before I was so nervous. So I don't know how you look so relaxed. I
2: went for a really long swim yesterday, oh, so I it. slept okay last night. But yeah, it was an early start this morning.
0: Oh, and hotshot Dr. Miranda Paraskeva. How are you?
2: I'm good, thanks.
0: Did you sleep last night? Were you nervous coming on? I was actually quite nervous. Oh, good. Yeah, Good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Because oh, I get nervous. I'm
1: still nervous. I've been doing it for a year and I, I find it very stressful.
0: You seem like... Are you nervous, Kent? Kent hasn't got a microphone, <laughs> so I have to translate. Oh, he's quivering. He's yeah. quivering with nervousness. Hey, um, what are we starting the ball rolling with? I'm just going to uh, close my intro on my iPad and quickly open up another thing. We're going to talk about... Who The Laws of Attraction. Yep. Did it, do you guys read this fantastic article? So well written. <laughs> so well yeah. written. Okay, I wrote this article during the week <laughs> and we're cheating on account of the fact that this saves us me doing double research for a topic. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, he said, let's incredible. just talk about this topic. And uh, what it's about is it was about a study published in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, their psychiatry journal called JAMA Psychiatry. And it was a pretty impressive study just to be upfront about it all. It was from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden and they looked at, um, they've got incredible databases in throughout Northern Europe and in particular Sweden, fantastic databases of pretty much everything about your health, your life, your occupation, all sorts of stuff and they looked at one of their fantastic databases and they looked at 700, over, it was about 750,000 people who had had a mental illness and they paired each one of them with five matched controls from the community and then they looked at people, who married who. Um, they tried to pick up, not just marriages, by looking at some other databases as well, in particular who'd had kids and who the partners were and stuff. So they tried to just basically look at what the laws of attraction were when it came to mental health. If you'd had a mental illness, who are you going to marry? And um, it turned out that if you had a mental illness, you had two or three times the chance of partnering up marrying someone who also had a mental illness and in particular certain mental illnesses tended to match together in particular mental illnesses that occurred at a young age like um, all the childhood disorders attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and um, asperger's uh, spectrum the autism spectrum disorders and if you had disorders with severe symptoms like for example schizophrenia you tended to marry someone with schizophrenia um, and they, they didn't, they thought the, the study mainly has a whole lot of implications for genetic research, and they talked about that, but quite frankly, that was quite dull unless you're a genetics <laughs> researcher. They talked a little bit about, um, uh, you know, about what it all could mean, but they basically said the studies, it, it's, it's, it's completely looking at associations, so it can't, it was, they looked at a one-year set of, um, of people, so they can't tell whether, you know, what the, why this is so. All they can say is it is so. And so, uh, in the article, of course, I speculated about why is it so. Um, what did you, did you guys get a chance to have a look at? It's pretty interesting stuff, isn't it?
1: Oh, I saw the author
0: and I thought, no. You <laughs> don't? skipped right over it. <laughs> you can look it up if you want it. to read the article. People, it was called it. the. Lord... <laughs> Wait a second, let me see what it was called because I didn't choose the title.
1: I a uh, When yes, it comes well. to mental
0: health, like attracts like. Look it up; it's in the conversation. Read it. I'll get some extra <laughs> reads. It's good. good. Yeah,
1: no, no, I did read it. I thought it was good. It's and an yeah. uh, But I kind of thought myself, it's a bit of a no-brainer, really. If people who have similar circumstances, uh, you know, are thrown together, um, then clearly that's going to be one of the reasons why you, you are more likely to choose a partner because you tend to be in the same environment, circumstance... And experiences. It didn't seem like that's, it was yeah. mind blowing to me. Well,
0: that's what struck me too. Mm. That's what struck me because the implication of the study is that it's all about you know this age old question: do opposites attract or do mm. likes attract? And nearly every bit of research in the world says likes attract and it's re- tracked and it's really just a bit of a myth. Sometimes people who are similar but have complementary features are even better. And I think that's where the concept of opposites attracts come from. So it seemed that that was the gist of how it was presented. Whereas it struck me that when... And Miranda's probably knows more about this than, uh, than I do, but from a research perspective and from a, um, a science perspective, it doesn't take that many um, uh, unusual cases to skew data. And I looked at it and thought, well, it's because of all these people are largely going to be meeting each other we see it all the time working in a psych ward we regularly have patients who hook up they come in not knowing each other and then they move in together afterwards or you know i see so many patients who say oh yeah you know especially with you know the severe and chronic mental illnesses they often met their partner through similar things drug and alcohol quite common you know they go to things like aa and support groups or they go onto online forums and you know they see the little you know they start chatting to someone on the forum and they meet and i thought that that is probably going to be skewing this data so much that it would be hard to draw any associations about the laws of attraction Mm. in general Mm. what about uh, you know and of course it led on to you know quick study you know when I say quick study you know I spent an hour quickly researching what are the laws of attraction so what what, what about you know I happen to know because I went to the movies last night with Capri and there was this man sitting oh, between us. and my us. husband
1: came too. No, but this came.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I happen to know she's married because there was this guy sitting in the middle of the two of us who turned out to be her husband. Yeah. Um, he was a nice guy.
2: Yeah.
0: What attracted well, was, you to your husband? Well,
2: that's what I was about
1: to say, that really, um, you know, certainly in our cohort of friends, and Steve and I, uh, Dr. little and I have done... Uh, have <laughs> Grown up in medicine together. We or not started grown at up. uni
0: together when yeah. we were, you know, obviously incredibly. We were like Doogie Howser. We were like five or six years old. <laughs> yeah, <go on. laughs> exactly.
1: And really, you know, we were attracted to our partners. Obviously, there are there's the physical and you know, all the intellectual attraction. But it's really circumstance. I mean, I, I first met my husband in a queue a week waiting for a hamburger or something. You know that? And and I just met him. I just him saw up. him. Yes, exactly. I didn't or actually did talk to him for up? months. Right. Oh, yeah, that's a long story. But anyway, so... Because he was,
0: just for the sake of um, Miranda and uh, training wheels over there, he was and for anyone who's listening, he was probably one of the best-looking guys in the whole course, <laughs> if not at uni at the time. He was sort of... He, he's got a name that suggests beaches, you know, something like, you know, windy, sunny or sandy, something like that. And, uh, you know, he's got, he looks like surfy, blonde hair, muscly. So, you know, although you, you're, you're still hot yourself. So how much of it was physical? How much of it was other well, stuff?
1: Well, as I say, in the queue, he, you know, there's probably about 50 people... Ahead of me, and uh, that was the initial sort of attraction. And and had had Who I not done, had I not done medicine um, and gone and done you know commerce, I'm sure I could be married to someone mm. else.
0: Yeah, oh, it's, well, it's, I I didn't actually I couldn't find this study to mention it in the in the um, article I wrote, but um, I have read a couple of times the rates of where you meet people, and about a third of people meet their partner at. Education, school Hmm. is really common, university. And then I think the next most common was work. And they're the two common places. And the main way you meet your partners is obviously through friends or acquaintances. What about you guys? What about the newbies? You know, have you got any thoughts? How are you going to, you know... I I, I don't know if you're married or single. (laughs) Or partnered up or not partnered up or...
2: I am partnered up. I met my partner in my undergrad, during undergrad. Um, But they did say on the first day of med school at the start of this year, you know, take a look at who's sitting next to you because you might end up marrying them, which has become a bit of a cliche, but the person giving the lecture then said, and I'd just like to say as a side note, I've been married to my wife for 30 years and we met on the first day of med school. Really? It obviously happens. It
3: does happen. Um, And that's what's weird about this study. How did they adjust for all of those things because I'm sure they didn't put in these people like bikes. no and they did that's why they got together because yeah, that's the yeah. similarity mm. so
0: they it didn't makes try sense. and to all they tried to adjust for all they matched the controls for were age essentially age and sex mm. so they had and you know about 45 were female, 55 were male on their database mm-hmm. um, of people, of the 750,000 who had mental illness and so they matched them for those things. The other thing they found in general was people with mental illnesses were not a huge amount but slightly less likely to be partnered up, which I suppose makes sense.
2: I'm just wondering if the study had anything to say about the happiness of the marriages, so they're more likely to be married to others with mental illnesses, but are they happily married? It Did no, didn't anything say
0: anything that? and it also didn't look at divorce rates or anything okay. like that. We, we're both... Um, uh, Capri and I are both married doctors, and, we, and we've had a fifty percent success rate. Uh, Relationships staying <laughs> together. One of them hasn't worked out. You'll never be able to guess which. <laughs> Seeing, I went to the movies last night with a married couple. <laughs> Mind you, they bought my drinks. When you go with the married couple, they buy your drinks. It's so good.
2: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three RR in Melbourne, Australia.
0: And I'm the only one who remembers the oh, Hey, everyone. You're listening. We don't really have a live studio, and we're faking. Um, and uh, that's how I like to do my medicine in general. You are listening to <laughs> Radio <laughs> Therapy, med- Radio Therapy on 3 triple I. Um On the panel this morning, you have myself, Dr. Doolittle, Dr. Capri to my left, our special guest, Dr. Miranda Paraskeva, and the person who is the subject of this particular interview... Dr. Training Wheels. And we got Dr. Training Wheels in because of a couple of things. One, she, she works in a foundation, which she's going to tell us about. And we wanted to ask her a bit about how foundations go. And also, I'm going to, I'm planning on saying, what's this whole Shane Warren business? Is it mucking up foundations or not? Um, so we, I'm just giving you pre-warning, there, training wheels. And also, Training Wheels has just, just started to study medicine, which I thought was really interesting. And I wondered, you know, what that, we wondered what that was all about. So, uh, welcome officially, Thank Training Wheels. Thank you so wheels.
2: much. Thank you for having me.
0: Um, Let's start with the foundation. So the foundation is called the Vincent Kyoto Charitable Foundation, is That's that correct? It. Yes. Tell us a little bit about it.
2: So it's named after my dad. Yep. He was diagnosed with brain cancer coming up to five years ago, and he died just under two years after that. Wow. And as he, he did quite well for a while, but as he kind of reached the end of his life, he decided, he, he started a business with his brothers, Yep. and it did quite well, and he decided he wanted to do something in his memory i suppose to sort of give something back yep so towards the end of his life he established this foundation and said to me hey what do you reckon and i said sounds fun so there's a board of directors and and together we we distribute funds to charities and causes that we like the sound of basically
0: you know that um, i'm glad you told that story and you know relating to your dad because that's what really you know struck me when i went because i heard that story yeah. um and uh You know, it made me wonder two things. It made me wonder, because, you know, how much of it for your dad was his grieving process? How much of it was linking with his daughter in some way? And how much of it was, you know, his desire, of course, to give back to the community, um, finding out that he's suffering an illness? Did you ever get a sense of that? I know it's a...
2: That's such a good question. I think it was definitely a combination of all three. Um, Part of the grieving process, I'd say, yeah, it's part of that thing of when we become aware of our mortality, we start thinking about our legacy and what that's going to mean I think and I think for him maybe he thought let's try and have a positive kind of spin on all this mm. this terrible mm. end to my life um and yeah and and with that legacy then allowing me to kind of carry that on for the years to come um so as you said the connection with me and um and it's been a it's been a really nice way to turn a an otherwise really sad event in my life into something that's quite positive. And I, I really enjoy the work that we do. It's yeah, fantastic. Sounds amazing. Well done. Um, I guess we're interested
1: in finding out what, how you decide who um, you distribute the, the funds to.
2: Sure. When it, Dad said that the causes he was most passionate about were children education and medicine so we sort of try to keep those in mind but it's pretty broad which is nice it it gives us a lot of flexibility um but it is nice to keep those in mind that to keep that in mind that that's where we're sort of coming from um but ultimately it really just comes up to comes down to what we're interested in and what we're passionate about as time sort of goes on, so at first we made some donations to the Alfred and to we did um, some for some medical research into brain cancer, and that was the first sort of round of donations that we made after Dad died, and we thought that was sort of a, a nice thing to do in his memory. Mm. And since then, we've sort of we've started doing this cool program that I'm really into. we still have a relationship with the business that Dad started with his brothers. And what we've do we been doing for the last two years is we contact all the staff. There are over 500 staff members. And we ask them to suggest any charities and causes that they're involved with or interested in. And it means that we come across charities that we would otherwise never find. I love that. I Mm. saw that
0: on your website. Mm. And there's this long list of charities. Uh, And they all look fantastic. It is. It's wonderful.
2: Some of them have been great, like... Um, restoring the facilities at a particular tiny CFA chapter somewhere Mm -hmm, in the outer burbs and you know putting a a roof on the basketball court at a primary school that's made a big difference for that whole community because that community doesn't have an indoor sports facility so it's not just the primary school that benefits
3: and it's just lovely stories like that that we wouldn't find on our own. I think it's really interesting that you didn't, your dad didn't want a charity set up to look into just the disease he had. I think that was a, a motivating factor for him. I remember him saying that he
2: he was really shocked at a lot of the costs associated with being ill and, and receiving treatment and that he was fortunate enough that he could afford to do everything he wanted to do, but a lot of people don't have that option. And, I mean, there's, for example, Charlie Teo, the famous brain surgeon. Yep tens of media thousands this of week. dollars yeah. for a for surgery with him yeah um and dad was never operated on by charlie but um it's obviously really prohibitive for a lot of people and i think dad was motivated by that a little bit and that's something we we donate to the cure brain cancer foundation which is the charity charlie teo started or they do a lot of research into treatments for brain cancer and it's something we're interested in but i think he was open to other stuff too mm-hmm.
0: Which was nice. It's so, yeah. I, I always wonder how you know charity. It's a good question, Capri, because you know I always wonder how charities are figuring it all out. Because the big charities are fantastic at marketing. Yes, they're fantastic yes. at self promotion. Yeah. They're fantastic at putting up their most gorgeous looking kid or their most sad looking story. <laughs> and I'm, I don't want to sound cynical about it, but you know, in working in the health field, you sometimes do get cynical. You sit there and you think, oh, they've done it again. You know, they're so good at their self promotion and marketing and. And normally you don't mind too much, because even though they're, you know, that you're feeling slightly cynical about it, you know it's a good cause anyway. So, you know, you think, oh, what the heck.
2: A bit of cynicism is healthy, though, certainly. There's a new mm. kind of, um, I guess... Project called Effective Altruism, which is this idea of um, donating to charities where your each dollar has the largest impact it possibly can. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, while it's great that somebody can have their hip replaced in inner-city Melbourne or something, for the same amount of money, you could probably save tens of thousands of people in sub-Saharan Africa by giving them insecticide-treated mosquito nets so they don't get malaria mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so it's good to be a little bit cynical and have a sort of critical eye. Well, you know, the other too.
0: place where all the cynicism comes in is in the raising money, of course. And, and as I, you know, highlighted in the intro, you know, in the media in the last couple of weeks, we've had the Shane Warne Foundation, you well, the last month, really, in lots of um, hot water because it turned out they were giving, I don't know, less than 20 cents in the do- ever, for every dollar that they raised to charity. And a fair whack of the money seemed to be going to things that, you know, could be seen as questionable, you know, family members involved in the charity, renting the buildings, this sort of business. Um, Do you you guys raise money or is it all money that's generated from the business?
2: The vast majority of it is from the business. We do get some donations from the public and we welcome that. We think that's really lovely to have involvement from the public, but most of it comes from the business. Um, and it is quite a strict sort of process of um, remaining accountable and yep. all that sort of thing, which I think is great, obviously. Mm. Um, and I've, as you say, the issue with the Shane Warne Foundation was this: there was so much administrative cost, which in a foundation, from what I understand, it wasn't a charity
0: in the sense that it wasn't doing the work itself so much as Correct. directing funds to yeah, charities that were so doing the g- work. It collects money and gives the money to other charities. Yeah, which is what we do yeah. as well.
2: And I think in the case of charities that are doing the work themselves, of course they're going to have some administrative costs, and mm. that's perfectly reasonable. Like any large business, it's going to cost yep. money for them to have their printers and their accounting and Yeah, I think the gold
0: standard's about I don't know 15 cents in the dollar, so Something you like know 85 percent, 85 cents should go back, and that's why they got in trouble was uh, the legal amounts relatively. S- Way there is much more flexible. I think the government allows something like you know seventy cents in the dollar, and still thinks it's okay and doesn't start asking questions. There's there's some cut-offs. Oh, I can't remember the exact numbers.
2: Yeah, well we're lucky. We've got a very small team, and the professionals, accountants, and and all those sorts of people. They donate their time for us. So it's.
0: Luckily, it's not going to be a problem. Hey, so, because, you know, one of the things that really struck me too, you know, being, you know, I, I thought to myself, goodness, if I was just starting a medical career and I was donating money, how would that differ from if I was older? And you know, I'd already done my medical career because I would have, like, you know, Capri and I, you know, we're you're still young in your career, Miranda. I Thanks. think if you were sub mid career, basically sub mid career. I think Everyone yeah. needs to know that
3: Steve called me mid career <laughs> <I> yesterday. <laughs> I should just, yeah. <laughs> I was I a little up bit Miranda
0: for, you know to say now, you know where you're going. You know, we're up in Brunswick, three triple R radiotherapy. Now we're going to talk. You know, we've got someone who's new in the career, and we've got you, your mid career, and I could, you know, and I yeah. and I got off the phone after and thought to myself, that's not the right thing to say to someone who's quite young. Um, (laughs) Anyway, where was I? So, you know, basically I was getting to the gist of the next question, was is this what inspired you to study medicine?
2: Oh, what a good question. Certainly part of it was my experience with Dad when he was ill, seeing Mm. his doctors and how they operated and things, not operators in slicing and dicing yep. but you know, go about working the... yes exactly um, I found that slicing glad, and dicing yeah, you sorry, that's have a lot of cruel. surgery
0: that must it's be, wakeful that must be a secondary <laughs> subject yeah yeah, yeah not yet
2: <laughs> um, yeah I found that really inspiring just the I mean you're obviously all very clever and experienced yeah, and especially me wonderful yep. but <laughs> the, the main thing that I found inspiring was just the the open communication with patients, Mm. communicating openly and graciously with somebody who's dying about that fact. I think that's really special. And I thought, what a wonderful thing to do. I want to do that. Yeah. Not necessarily people dying. All the time <laughs> I think that uh, I think you know in your first
1: week you you would have talked about what makes a good doctor, and yes. I think being at the fore having an experience like that, and I 've shared a similar experience with you um, with the death of my father okay. last year, and my mother had a brain tumor as well, oh, but is she's that right? doing well um, just that distinction between what makes a an effective capable doctor yes you know we all we hope that all doctors are good at what they do I mean you've spent years training but then there's that other side that you know unfortunately not all doctors are good in that area and I think you can really see that and really appreciate it and, um, yeah, I'm not I'm not surprised you're inspired as a result of that experience. It can make
2: such a big difference not only for the individual patient, which, of course, is hugely important, but I think for patients developing a sense of trust on a grand scale too. If if you have a good experience with the medical profession broadly, yep. you'll trust them more broadly on a kind of more societal level. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, yep. definitely.
1: And it's
0: funny because what... What influences people's trust, people's... Faith in the profession and their contact is can be so different. Like I see people who sometimes go to doctors who I know are fantastic but are just crappy communicators mm. and they don't know whether their outcome was due to the doctor or not or the medications or the decisions they made or just good luck, bad luck, the time of the year, whatever random chance or whether but if the doctor's a good communicator they invariably walk away with a good experience and I know a number of doctors who are crappy decision makers. They don't understand logic science very well and they're fantastic <laughs> communicators and their patients have absolutely rave about them Mm. so the things that influence your trust aren't ness there's no way of knowing because and they're you know it's it's tricky
2: absolutely and in this first week capri you were saying we did the week on how to be a good doctor sort of which we we did um something was mentioned that most malpractice suits come down to poor communication at the end of the day not poor
0: skills and knowledge yeah, people more complain about that bad experience yeah. because you, at the end of the day, you never know. If you're having an operation or a lung transplant, say, there's, there's no way of knowing whether it was the skill of the physician or the good luck of your body that it accepted or rejected the lungs. You just can't tell. You can look at overall data. You can maybe say, look at the Alfred, um, their rates compared to, you know, the lung transplant unit in Santiago, Chile and decide which one's better. Um, Santiago. Um, or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. but, you know, you, there's all sorts. You know, But at the end of the day, you don't know. It's such a tricky thing. Hey, you know, (laughs) Capri and I were talking about this last night at the movies. By the way, what movie did we see? We should tell people.
1: Spotlight
0: Spotlight I'll great go and see movie. it We Good loved it Didn't movie. we It goes yeah. for two hours And it's harrowing Especially if you have Any Catholicism in you at all Yes It's harrowing yes. Um, but, uh, but definitely go and see it But we were talking about We were trying to remember What scared us When we were started Because I remember you, I know you don't do So much dissection now But I remember walking in The first time I had to do Dissection into the um, lab You know Where we knew that There were dead bodies And they were informal And we were going to have To pull them out And start dissecting it You know I just remember I didn't eat that morning Because I didn't want to vomit <laughs> and, I, you know, and I was just like you know, don't look nervous. And I was walking in like a robot, don't look nervous, show no signs of weakness in case the dead bodies come alive and attack me first. Um, is there anything you're scared about? Um, just
2: on the... The dissections. I just wanted to mention, we did a bit of that in undergrad. Oh, and I remember you? they warned us, thank goodness, but there's that strange thing of the smell of the formal the f- and making That's you true. hungry. Yes. And you oh, think, oh, really? am I suddenly really? a cannibal? Yes. What has happened yes. to oh, me? Oh, oh, so I, I,
0: I, think, oh, I don't remember that. I don't remember that either. Oh, you know,
2: it's bad. Yeah. I ate
0: the patient's heart. <laughs> <laughs> I can actually remember I thinking... I it was the wrong thing to do.
1: I don't think I can do this purely because of the smell. I can remember walking mm. in through the doors and thinking, oh, I just don't know that I can... Actually, you know, just tolerate the smell. So I don't remember feeling hungry. That is, oh, for and sure. you
2: crave meat. It was oh, bizarre.
0: but I had no. I, <laughs> that is, oh. I <laughs> had absolutely no medical background. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, had, yeah that's, that's just you. I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, it's a common. <laughs> yeah, thing. no, no, you're getting a diagnosis. Something. <laughs> um, no, but I also because I had no medical background at all. No one in the family was a doctor except for an aunt who I didn't have a, at the time. I wasn't having. She was only a student anyway. And so, uh, like, I was even scared of injections mm. and i was scared of, and i and i've heard a lot of people were scared of blood and i didn't really know whether i was i hadn't really seen any i was, <laughs> okay. I'd had a led a sheltered life um you know but nothing like that you're not scared of anything like that you're sort of rare to go
2: i think i'm m- mainly just not scared but anxious about um the communication side of things just not you know getting oh, uh, trust me uh, you're my you're gonna aunt cruise calls yeah. it um, yeah. foot in mouth disease no. when you oh i shouldn't have
0: said <laughs> that no, you're um, going to cruise. Yeah. yeah, that's What so about you, Miranda? Because you're like brand new in your career. You're like a baby. You're like, I mean, <laughs>
3: so I so sort of infant. feel...
0: Yeah, I sort of think of you as yeah, almost a fetal doctor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm Not, going not, back not even in close time. to victory. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember? Were you scared of anything?
3: I was scared of lots of things. But um, especially that first bit where you go into theatre. I wasn't operating scared of theater. operating theatres. So I wasn't actually scared about the operations. I was scared about putting all the stuff on... And just standing there for hours and maybe fainting. Yeah. Yeah. And I did once. And after that going into theatre was just torture every single yeah. time because oh, so I was like, no. I'm going to go down
0: again. <laughs> oh, I hated the formality of theatre. You know, it's so formal and they treat the surgeon, well, no, sorry, I should rephrase that, the surgeon treats himself or herself like a god and you go in there and you're just some, sometimes, but not all. A lot of them are just divine and lovely, but you know, I, we certainly had some, Capri, yes. where we went in and they threw instruments back in the day. They don't do that now, you'll be pleased to know. Yes. But back in the day they'd throw instruments, abuse people oh. for the most minor things, clearly often just because they were irritable themselves. Nothing to do with what anyone had done, and I hated all that nervousness. You know that tension, and were they going to yell at me? You know, because I'm such a nice person.
2: Well, it sounds like quite possibly <laughs> I don't know enough to know what to be terrified yes. of yes. 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 Now There's you're a lot scared. Of, yeah. Awful things to come.
0: Hey, do you know what you want to do with your career?
2: I'm thinking GP at this stage, but yep. I don't know. Obviously, Doctor
0: Caprice just given um, training wheels. Up. A big thumbs yeah. up. <laughs> yes,
2: we need people like you. Uh, yeah, that's the plan.
1: Yeah. I think
0: I know. The thing, I mean, I think everyone gets different satisfaction out of their career, you know, and, and there's so many sources of satisfaction in any career, and I, you know, probably for medicine, it's, you know, it's great science, it's great communicating, it's unbelievably um, privileged being welcomed into people's lives and stuff. And I, I know, like, if I look at the end of each year and I think back, what were the good things? It's nearly always a patient contact. Yeah, um, definitely. I don't know. I mean, sometimes you look back and oh, I'm really glad I did this course or this thing happened or whatever. But, you know, the thing that, you know, so I think you can't go wrong with some attitudes like that. Hey, it's beautiful um, listening to all that. But thank you. You're going to stick around, of course, for the next seminar anyway. Absolutely. But thank you for coming in and sharing all thank that information. Thank you for having me. Three triple R. And our special guest to chat to, who you've been listening to already a bit for the next segment, is Dr. Miranda Paraskeva. Now, Miranda, I mentioned this in the intro, but I'll just tell you so you know exactly where we're going. Miranda's a respiratory physician with expertise in the area of advanced lung disease and lung transplantation. She completed her undergraduate medical training at Monash, and she undertook advanced training in respiratory and sleep medicine at the Alfred Hospital. She's a consultant respiratory and lung transplant physician now at the Alfred and a lecturer in the Department of Medicine at Monash uni. Uh, she participates in active research programs. She's published a number of original research manuscripts in the field of lung transplant and was recently awarded the International Career Development Award for her work. See, she must be early career, not mid-career. <laughs> um, and uh, Miranda is also a member of a whole lot of societies like the Thoracic Society, International Society of Heart and Lung Transplants. Basically, as I mentioned earlier, she's a hot shot. And uh, she's here to tell us a little bit about transplantations, the whole sort of stuff. So again, you know, formally welcome, Miranda. It's formal welcome time. Thank you for having why don't you kick the um, kick it off with telling us a little bit about your job? You know, what do you do? It Sounds so mysterious and exciting. Uh,
3: so I work at the Alfred Hospital. We are the lung transplant service, I guess, for Victoria, South Australia, and Tasmania, yep. in the southern part of New South Wales. Uh, we so what we do is assess people who have end-stage lung disease, make a decision about whether they're suitable for transplant, and then assess donors and arrange
0: for. People on a wait list have transplants. How many transplants a year now? About 80. Yeah, and just for the record, everyone, that's a massive amount. You know, when you first started, we first started doing lung transplants in Victoria, 15 years? Oh, no, more no, than that, uh, 25 years ago. Oh, God. Um, but I know when I got to the Alfred, it was like it, they used to... The heart-lung transplant unit sort of works hand-in-hand and it was used to be about 50 hearts a year and around about 10 or 15 lungs and now it's completely the opposite. It's like mm-hmm. eight lungs have just got so good, the transplant processes, that we're now up to 80 and the main thing limiting it, I gather, is donors, donors. I assume. Yeah, and
3: I think the main thing limiting all transplants around Australia and around the world is donors and the availability of donors.
0: And so what age groups do we transplant now?
3: So at the Alfred, we, uh, we like I said, we transplant adults from those three states, but we're also the paediatric transplant centre for Australia. And so we, our youngest
0: transplant recipient was five mm-hmm. and wow. our oldest was 70. Wow. So for the whole Australia, so if someone in Queensland wants a lung transplant and they're a kid, they have to come down to Melbourne?
3: They do. They have to relocate. Well, some of them have to relocate to Melbourne, depending on how far it is and how difficult it would be to get them here. To Melbourne on the night of the transplant, or otherwise we just transport them over on the night, and Ah. they stay here for three months after transplant to finish their rehab before we send them home. Gee,
0: that's pretty good. I thought people in... I sort of remember when I... Because I used to work in heart transplant a little bit, and I thought they had to stay for a year back then when I did anyway. I haven't worked in it for a while.
3: Oh, they might have. Um, And and I think, you know, originally we used to transplant people from Western Australia as well, so they had to relocate because it's just impossible to get them over here in time.
0: But it's three months now and you get to go home and your special area is like the adolescence isn't it is it kids and adolescents or just adolescents it's predominantly adolescents
3: um and that's sort of grown out of the fact that we do have a pediatric program and so we have have more people to look after in that age group um and it's also because i'm interested in that age group so it's sort of naturally fallen to me more by choice than by specialty
2: I imagine it's quite different managing adolescents than adults. Could you tell us a little bit about that, please?
3: Yeah, it is quite different, um, mainly because they've got really different issues to deal with. Like, I don't know, I quite acutely remember being a teenager and being a teenager is a pretty awful um, time Mm. in your life. So if you're sick and you need to have a transplant Mm. as well, it can be a really difficult thing. So it's more about managing them taking their medications turning up to clinic and not getting too excited
0: about feeling well and going out into the world from a psych perspective you know we always say that you know people always divide the life up into developmental phases and i'm trying to think of oh i know what it is the key term they use for adolescence is separation versus individuation so it's learning to um you know break away from all the molds and your families and develop your own ideas so it is by definition a time when you don't want to agree with everything mm-hmm. that um authority figures tell you your parents your school principal your, your doctor. doctors <laughs> yeah so how so what happens there how does that all fit in
3: so i think also these kids are really different in another way like unlike you or i who have probably had a really torrid 15 to 18 year old time they've also almost died not died and then being told they might almost die again if they don't do what we tell them. And so it's a really difficult time and they do respond to feeling well from having a transplant by going and doing all the things that their friends do and they don't want to be different to everybody else. Uh, I can remember
1: a not so difficult teenage uh, phase, but I can certainly remember a difficult raising teenage phase.
0: <laughs> um, so it's probably those two phases, yours and your kids, were probably identical. You just remember them differently. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Clearly, I
1: different. was perfect. Mum, I was... <laughs> you, and
0: my child, aren't perfect.
1: <laughs> so how do you negotiate? How do you deal with the parents of the adolescents? How do you, how do you kind of um, that sort of dynamic must be quite difficult
3: to manage? Well, I think that's it's really hard for parents as well who are. Looking looking after kids that may have a medical problem because there's also they're fighting about things like taking medications Mm. and going to the doctor, but they're also fighting about cleaning their room and going to school. (laughs) Don't smoke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't drink, don't smoke. And that's, you know, they're the stuff we tell them too. So they've got this second set of doctor parents who yes. are saying, you can't do anything fun. Mm, yeah. Plus, you need to take all your tablets every day. Mm.
0: How important is it to relate to them? Because you look pretty young. So, I mean, that oh, obviously... But that would obviously help. <laughs> like and 12. Uh, Yeah. yeah <laughs> but that would obviously help. How important, you know, because I know... Um, you know, I always think that's a... You know, some people can... You, can really bridge communication gaps regardless. But um, being like people is similar. And I know when you go to the children's, you know, everyone looks youthful in their outlook. Mm. Like you'll see the physicians wearing T-shirts of, you know, with pictures of, you know, funky pictures on the T-shirts instead of a suit and tie. You know, how important is that? all that sort of stuff?
3: Look, I think that's fairly important. But the most important thing, and I'm sure it's the sort of same thing as training was was saying is that you trust your doctor and that you know that they're going to do what's right for you and that to some degree that as long as that everyone's on the same team and I think that's far more important so we spend a lot of time making sure these kids and I probably shouldn't call them kids because they're young adults yep. but understand that what I want for them is the best for them and mm. so I'm not trying to be mean and I'm not trying to be difficult and if they he- and that I'm trying to help them get to that point, like they need to get that we're on the same team and yeah. I think that's the
0: strength of our program. Mm. You know, because the whole area of adolescent medicine, it's probably developed, it wasn't a thing when um, Capri and I went through uni, it just wasn't a thing and since then it's become a thing probably in the last 20 years, in psych my area, my field, it's become a huge thing, we've had the head develop and head are essentially for 15 to 25 year olds largely and their whole thing you go into them they're just so user friendly they don't look like hospital clinics mostly you know they look relaxed and calm and everyone's in you know i think you know i think we're making some real ground but i guess what i'm i was going to say is have we made enough ground i don't i think in tertiary hospitals like the alfred we haven't
3: no i don't think we definitely haven't And I think in psychiatry, people are recognising that adolescents are different, but they're not recognising adolescents are different in anything else. And, you know, that grant, you sort of said, the early career grant, was to look at outcomes. And teenagers die disproportionately after transplant to adults, and they shouldn't because they're well. They're Mm. young people with nothing else wrong with them. They have a transplant and then they die at half the time that it takes everybody else to die. And it's almost entirely because they don't take their tablets. Mm. I think there is a place for making it look like a cool and fun place but it's not that's not my job either i'm not my job's not to be cool you know it doesn't have to be you who does it though
0: Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be you it can be you know like traditionally at other places it's you know people who are more into that sort of stuff like say social workers who are highly skilled in those interaction sides of things and anyway so yeah
3: but it's my job that the patient understands that i'll have their back Mm. and that i will do whatever it takes to make them better and that i also won't judge them and make them feel bad for stuffing up because they're going to. Yeah. Everybody yeah. does. Yeah. We yeah. just we all did, but no one... We didn't die. <laughs> Steve keeps I them. did. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I did. I've been reincarnated. I'm like a cat. Meow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you've obviously got a
2: particular interest in adolescent health. Did that follow from your interest in lung transplants or was it the
3: other way around? No, it definitely followed from my interest in lung transplant. And it was probably, to some degree, Steve was saying, I am the youngest in our unit and so and I did probably have the spend the most time with this cohort so I was I spent a, ho- a very long time in the unit as a resident a registrar and then the consultant which just means I was there for very many years and so to some degree I had a lot of exposure to these patients and I sort of got older with them yeah, to some degree yeah. and then because I recognized that there was a more difficulty in it I got more interested in that.
0: Hey that's some um, really interesting so you went to Monash University, I think we established Mm. before. So you went to Monash, then you went to Alfred, which is Monash's um, Mm. golden hospital people from Monash Medical Centre, feel free to slap me across the <laughs> face. It's not uh, Monash's guy, I was just staring because I, I happen to pass through those doors occasionally myself. Um, but it's one of Monash's hospitals. Mm. And then you've worked in the unit as a resident. Did you work in as a resident? Yep. So a resident is a junior doctor pre-training mm-hmm. everyone. So then you went on to registrar, which mm-hmm. is trainee, and then you're now a consultant. Have you left home? And you still live with <laughs> mum and dad? <laughs> <laughs>
3: So I will preface that I yeah. did work at the Austin for
0: the first two years of my training. Oh, did
3: you? Yeah, just to all make right. it seem like I didn't spend the whole time at the Alpha. But then I did a resident year in lung transplant and yep. decided that's what I wanted to do. And then I just didn't leave. And so because I had a sit-in,
0: they had to give me a job. Right. So soon, <laughs> head
1: of, soon head of unit.
3: Yeah.
0: yeah. That's a nice way to do it. Did you go overseas at all? You know, a lot of people do a stint somewhere and or whatever. No. So...
3: F- for me, it was all set up. So one of the biggest units in the world is Toronto, and yep. there's a long history in our unit of people going to Toronto and doing fellowships there, and it was all set up to go. And then the job I had, or I have now, came up, and really they don't come up that frequently, and so I took the
0: job. That's an interesting point for young training wheels too. You know, look, there's some careers it's you know, like you can go into psychiatry any time. They take, um, you know, 50-odd trainees a year, 60 a year, and... might might even be more now, whereas some, you know, if you choose that you want to work in transplants, even, you know, in Melbourne, we've got, I mean, apart from renal transplants, of which, you know, they're almost, you know, very routine these days, but the biggies, liver, lung, um, heart, you know, the jobs come up once every five to ten years, mm. you know, it's a real window of opportunity. Did you work over in the lung, tran- the livers at Austin, or did you, was it just general stuff at Austin? No,
3: it was just general stuff. I worked in the renal transplant, but as a second year resident, so as right. a trainee. Uh,
0: I was a junior, very junior doctor, and yeah, I like
3: transplant, and I just had a very transplant-based rotational thing, which was all random, and it's turned out to be what I wanted to do. Oh, it's it a bit like choosing your partner, isn't it? It's just
1: yeah. your circumstance and environment and, exp- and mm. exposure.
0: But I think that is a lot how we choose our careers in medicine, you know, to, you know just to come the full circle... Um, any, it's a lot about look. You know, I don't know. I wanted to be a psychiatrist since early. You know, this what I always wanted to be. I did like You know, went and worked in Lifeline when I was in third year medicine, and so I always knew I wanted to do psych. Although I must admit, you know, often I'd go into. You know, I'd do pediatrics, and I'd say, "Well, oh, those kids are so cute," and I'd do cardiology, and it's oh, so much want a Porsche. But um, <laughs> but um, this like, the second time oh, I cracked that joke today. Um, I think it was after that. I wasn't
2: was going to say
3: more. anything. It's all right. It's Monday
0: not fair. Was so it doesn't though. matter. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but the point being, um, the point being, you know, I still came back, but I still. Th- a lot of people know it's what they're exposed to. Mm. Um, I know my partner wanted to be a gynaecologist, and she um, did some research in neurology and ended up in that area. The, my ex-partner, I should apologise in case people, you know, she'll get mad and say, "Don't associate myself with you now." Mm-hmm. But. Um, <laughs> But uh, you know, there, it's a real mixture of what you're exposed to and what you like. I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah, see
3: I knew what I didn't want to do, so I was just crossing things off. Yes. So that's, I knew yeah. from the end of medical technique. school that there was no way I wanted to ever enter a theater if I could help it. Right. So, so that's I didn't what I'm want to go with, yeah. I didn't
0: want to be a surgeon. That's what I'm doing with relationships mm-hmm. now. <laughs> 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 I'm, you know, one after the other, I'm ticking them up. No not, no not not, not, that. Not, <laughs> not Yeah. Yeah. So you ruled out surgery. Did you rule out psychiatry? Uh
3: I think that was my psych, ro- like psych rotation in um, after medical school. I ruled that out. That's
0: um, a shame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is tricky. It's it's all those different things. What about you know? Because I was so. What about going into medicine? Did you always know you want? You said
3: oh, I feel like you're tricking me into this one. No, I didn't. Not always know I wanted to be a doctor. And I think that was the value of having an undergraduate degree is that. And it's an awful thing to say, but I got the marks and I thought I'll give it a go and if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out and I'll do something else and then I couldn't decide what else to do and I kept saying oh maybe I'll think find something else to do and so I took a year off and didn't think about it and <laughs> went back and finished medicine and then did intern year and second year and my physician's exams and I was still like maybe there's something else I can mm. do and then I realized and this is an awesome job yeah like, I can can't imagine doing anything yeah. else but the way the new course is, I don't think I'd be a doctor because I don't think I would have had that drive to do another course and then try and get into postgraduate mm. medicine because I think I would have found something else I liked. I hope I would have found something else
0: I liked. But it could probably work in you know, every way. Like There's probably still mm. the kids at school who say, I want to be a doctor and they go and do the, um, the postgraduate course meaning that they have mm. to do an undergraduate course first so they go to uni and they yeah. do either science or a biomedical degree and then get into medicine later and there's probably some You know, some of those still probably know from word go that Mm. I want to be a doctor, it doesn't matter, I'm going to... And others probably, you know, maybe would have been like you and go and do it and then say, actually, I love something else, I'm going to do that. You know, I don't know, I know so many people who went into medicine who say, I don't know if I'd choose it second time round. You know, I reckon a third of the people I speak to say, I don't know if I'd choose it. A third say, no, it's been the best career ever. And a third, you know, sort of seem to me. There's a lot of people who do bits and pieces. I know someone at the moment who always, the whole way through medicine, he said he wanted to be a carpenter and one day he was going to leave. And, you know, and about a year ago he bought a house that he's been renovating a day a week. He's gone to part-time and he's renovating, gets a builder in every day, every Friday, I think it is, who works on the house all Friday and basically teaches him how to be a carpenter. And, you know, so some people, you know, (laughs) wax and wane throughout their life. I don't know if there's a solution. Um, But thanks for listening to our show, Radiotherapy, this morning. Special thanks to our two guests, Dr. Training Wheels from the um, Vincent Kyoto Charitable Foundation and telling us about her early career as a med student. Dr. Miranda Paraskeva from the Lung Transplant Unit at the Alfred telling us all about that and how she chose to get into it. And, of course, the uh, legendary uh, Dr. Capri. Why do you, what are you gro- groan of, and you? Dean of
1: Medicine. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Who's the Vice-Chancellor <laughs> of the university oh, yes. and pretty much is soon going to be the President. Why do we have a President or Prime Minister? The Prime Minister of Australia. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week at 10 a.m.
3: What does
2: that mean,
0: anyway? 102.7 triple. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.